Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. You have your Bibles turned to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We'll read the first 11 verses. John chapter 2, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. There were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. They bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee manifested forth his glory, his disciples believed on him. Let us pray. We thank thee, our Father, that we can share in the worship of your holy name as we'll come together this morning with gratitude and with the desire to lift you up and to praise you serve you with our total being. Thank you for all who are present this morning. May our efforts together be rewarded as our lives are blessed, our hearts are filled with goodness from you. We go out to represent you in our community as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to remind you before I start uh, the message that uh, on Sunday nights, All of January and February, we are going to be dealing with the subject of the Second Coming. Started last Sunday night and will continue all through February and March from Matthew chapters 24 and 25. If this is of any interest to you, you'd like to know more about the Second Coming, we certainly encourage you to come out and share these evening services. This morning we are dealing with the subject, the best to last, you may notice those words spoken by the uh, governor of this feast, the wedding feast, when he called the bridegroom and said to them, everybody serves the best wine first and leaves the stuff that's not too good until last, and you have done the opposite. You served your worst wine first, and you've kept the best to last. 
on that subject that I, I want us to uh, think this morning. The occasion is a wedding feast. You remember, perhaps, that the Jews had a wedding that's somewhat different than ours. That is, they had the marriage ceremony, and then the couple did not live together. They went to their own homes. They were separate for a year, although they were considered legally married. Even though one might die during that period of time, then they would be considered a widow or a widower, even though they had never yet lived together. Then at the end of the year, they would have the feast, a wedding ceremony. And Jesus gave us a story about a bridegroom who went to the bride's home, which was the custom, to pick up his bride and bring her back to the wedding feast. This would have been at night, because the, the friends of the bridegroom, who were called the virgins, five were wise and five were foolish, because they took lamps along, but five of them didn't take any oil in their lamps, and there was a story that Jesus told to teach us a lesson. But here he is at one of these feasts. He has been invited, he along with his disciples, to take part in a party. Celebration, a, a feast that was to be held in, in honor of the bride and groom, and after this feast was over, then they began living together. And Jesus and his disciples were present. I think sometimes we overlook the fact that our Lord ought to be involved in those party times in our lives as well as in those terrible, sad times. We often get that mixed up, and when we're having a good time, don't think in terms of inviting the Lord to share in those good times. But if things go sour for us and get bad, then we quickly think in terms of getting a hold of the Lord and inviting Him to share with us because we want something from him then. We want his blessing. We want his comfort. We want some wisdom as to how to handle the bad times. But is it not reasonable that we ought to invite him to participate with us in the good things of life? And this is something that we don't often do, I think, or as often surely as we ought to. Big feast was going on. Christians oftentimes are depicted as the dull and drab. And I think we have made ourselves that way, and therefore by the world in general are considered to be rather dull and drab. As if we must go around with long faces, never have any fun, and punish ourselves by not having fun, not enjoying feast days. I am glad that we as a church don't quite see that way, and that we do come together to celebrate various events with a, with a meal of some sort, or snacks. But you know, there are churches, there really are churches, and you probably know of some, who don't believe that you ought to eat church. 
That's just something that shouldn't be done, according to, to some churches. And the basis for that statement, that you ought not eat in church, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 34. When Paul said to the Corinthian church, if you're hungry, eat at home. And they take that verse out of context and do not realize that it is spoken at the end of a discourse that Paul was giving about the partaking of the Lord's Supper. The communion service. The thing that was happening is that they would come together for communion and people would be so uh, overbearing that they would crowd in and grab the bread and make a meal out of it and grab the wine and, and, and drink it without very much consideration as to the reason they were doing it. Now, you obviously couldn't make a meal out of the little wafer that we hand out at communion time or the little glass of grape juice, but that wasn't originally what was happening. And Paul was very disturbed that the people were abusing the communion service and not properly considering its purpose and were gorging themselves around the communion table. So he said, you guys, if you're hungry, eat at home. Don't come here and make a meal out of the communion service. But that phrase has been taken out of context, and people read it, say, if you're hungry, eat at home, which means don't ever come to church and eat which is foolhardy, ridiculous, and does not fit into all with the context of the Scripture. It was an abuse of the Lord's Supper that was being spoken of. The early church ate together all the time. Matter of fact, they had breakfast together and lunch together and dinner together because they were together. They not only ate together, they lived together. They slept in the same house. They were a commune of people who were supporting each other by being together and did all things together, including eating. So we can't even look at the early church and say that that's something that ought not to be done. There needs to be a return to the closeness that might be depicted in the early church. We are, I don't know how many people this morning, 75 maybe, here in this congregation. And I would dare say that not one of us could stand up and call by name everybody else in this congregation. Can anybody do it? My point is, we really don't know each other very well. We may recognize each other's faces, but we, during the week, are in our separate ways, and the only time we're ever together is probably on Sunday morning. There are a few of us that come together on Wednesday nights. There are few more who come together on Sunday nights, and there are the groups during the week, the ABW and the youth group who meet and get to know each other fairly well. But as a congregation, we're strangers to each other. And that really ought not be. We ought to know each other fairly well. And this is something that, that just has been lost 
in modern-day society because the church people go so many different ways, and we only come together for this one particular time, and we sort of lose that closeness. That's one of the values that is in the small group meetings, such as our youth group, our Sunday school classes, uh, our Wednesday nights, is that we get to know each other a lot better in those smaller groups, and that's valuable and important. And here Jesus finds himself in a group of uh, intimate friends who are at a festival of celebration, of joy, probably singing, and lots of things were taking place, and he shared in that. And they were at the meal eating, and they ran out of wine. To run out of wine at a meal like that would be quite embarrassing. It's like running out of punch at the reception for a wedding. It's embarrassing to have that happen. Jesus' mother apparently was in charge of the arrangements. And she said to Jesus, we don't have any wine. I've heard lots of people try to explain away the word wine, say that was only grape juice. Trying to make the scriptures fit into our concept of total abstinence from uh, alcoholic beverages. Listen, you can't do it with the word wine. The word wine means fermented grape juice. Now let's just be uh, factual about it. What they did was took a fermented grape juice, and how could you keep it from fermenting if you didn't have processors to do it? And they diluted it usually with two to three parts of water, and they used that as a common drink. And this was what was served at this meal. Uh, the Greek for wine means exactly that and nothing else. And for people who are uh, those teetotalers that you hear on the radio once in a while who want to say, now Jesus did not drink wine, don't you keep yourself... Jesus drank wine reduced with certain portions of water to make it a usable drink. That was the common drink. But there is plenty of scripture to indicate that one must be cautious in the drinking of anything that is fermented. Plenty of it. There is plenty of reason to talk about abstinence. And, we, and I'm not excusing uh, anybody from talking about that subject. I do not preach about it very often because I don't think it's necessary. I learned a long time ago when you've got the heart right, the rest of your life will follow in line. And it's pointless to talk to a church full of 75 people when maybe nobody or very few people are those who would imbibe to the excess, at least, of alcoholic beverages. But there's plenty of scripture to indicate that one must be very cautious in, in his use of such things. And I'm not going to belabor the issue this morning to talk about this subject at all. But the abuse of anything to the excess is sin. If we're going to talk 
and make our campaign against alcoholic beverages, we're going to have to put in the same basket overeating. We're going to have to put in the same basket anything else that does abuse to our body, to our testimony, to our church, or to our law. And that covers a whole volume of things. Let's go start picking out little things uh, that uh, we want to use when what we do is pick out one that doesn't bother me. Listen, I can preach about alcohol all day long because I don't imbibe. But don't let, you know, I'm not going to preach about overeating too often. And what's the difference? Do you get my point? Let us be honest and fair with our dealing with the subject that whatever we do to the excess that detracts from our testimony is contrary to God's will. Now, Mary comes to... I hope nobody goes out of here and says that I'm saying it's all right to drink. I didn't say that. You understand that, don't you? Mary comes to Jesus and tells him that she's got a problem. You know, I wish that the Scripture had given us some insight into the relationship of Jesus and his mother from his birth until his ministry, in his growing up years. But we don't have anything on that. I'm sure that Jesus, like any little boy, would begin to be inquisitive about many things, and one of the things he would inquire about is, Mommy, where did I come from? I would like to have heard her answer. As she explained to her son that his conception was of God, that she explained to him about his birth in the manger in Bethlehem and all those things, and explained to him that there's prophecy in the Old Testament, Jesus, that refers to you. You're going to be the Messiah, the Savior of this world. I don't know what all those things that she must have talked about, but there was such a relationship and Mary understood his purpose in this world in that when they ran out of wine, she comes to Jesus and simply says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? To translate in modern-day terms, and he was not being disrespectful and saying, woman, in an international version, calls it dear woman. He would have used this affectionately. He was saying, Mother, what do you expect me to do about it? Now, Jesus has never yet, as far as we know, performed a miracle. This is his first one. And Mary says, Son, we don't have any wine. Jesus said, my hour is not yet done. It's not time for me to start doing miracles. And Mary just grins and says to the servant standing around, whatever he tells you to do, you do it and walks off. This is the way I perceive her doing it. Putting the pressure on Jesus, and now what's he to do? He has been given a problem. 
And the person who gave him the problem is not even there now. She's gone away just into other things. I think there's a lesson here for us. The lesson, I believe, that we can read into this story is when we have a problem, the place to take it is to the Lord. You know, that doesn't happen as often as it ought. The thing that I see happening is when we have problems, we go take it to somebody else. And the Lord is the last person we think of when it comes to solving our problems. When he ought to be the first one. There's a hymn that we sing, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. That's what Mary did. She took her problem to the Lord and she left it there and went her way. We take, sometimes take our problems to other people and don't even let the Lord in on the situation. The other thing that we do, if we do take it to the Lord, is that we take it to him, but we don't leave it there. We carry it on our shoulders day after day after day, fuss and worry and fret. Listen, if we have given it to the Lord to handle, why can't we go on free-hearted about our business? Knowing that the Lord now is aware, we have laid it on his shoulders, we have taken our burden to the Lord, and we've left it there, and we can feel good because we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. If I love the Lord, and I take my burden to the Lord and leave it there, I can go without fear and concern because I know whatever now is going to take place is in the will of the Lord. But we shouldn't be standing around telling him how to solve our problem. And that's usually what we do. Lord, I have this problem, and this is what I want you to do about it. Now, Mary didn't come up and say, Lord, I don't have any wine. How about making that water into wine? She didn't do that. But that's what we do. We say, Lord, I have a friend who is sick. I want you to make her or him well. What did we do? We put restrictions upon him. Sometimes getting well is the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. So she says, servants, whatever he says, you do it. Well, there's a door with six 30-gallon jars full of water. Well, they had had water in them. They weren't now. That uh, they had used to wash the feet of the people going into the fish. A servant would sit there and dip out water out of these jars and wash the feet of the people and dry them with a towel because they wore sandals and they would be sandy. And that was a, a custom, a social grace to be used at, at any kind of a gathering. So there were six jars, 30 gallons, 100 and, uh, 180 gallons worth of water that would have been used, so that indicates somewhat the size of this party. And Jesus says to the 
servants fill up the jars. And so they go to the well, and they bring water, and they pour in the jars, and the jars are full. And he does a very odd thing. He simply said, now dip out of the jars, take that into the wedding feast. And can you imagine the eyes of the servants when they took that first dip out of there and discovered that it was wine? And they carry that into the feast, gives it, passes it out. Wasn't much. Just some water is all that was given. But the Lord performed a miracle with this common, ordinary, everyday thing and made the best wine that had ever been tasted. You remember the story of 5,000 who were out on the hillside and Jesus was preaching to them and it came time for the meal and there was nothing to eat. The disciples said to Jesus, why don't you send the people away so they can go into the villages around here and, and buy themselves something to eat? And Jesus said, you feed them. And they said, well, we don't have anything to feed them. Well, there's no food here. Jesus said, go see what you have. And when they made a survey of that whole crowd, they came back with one boy whose mother had packed him a lunch. Had a few little fish sandwiches. This is not for lunch. Jesus took that little bit. He prayed. And he started breaking it. He handed it to all 12 of his disciples and said, Now go distribute to the crowd. And remember they all had enough to eat, and there were 12 baskets of scraps left over from one little lunch. Some of you, oftentimes, will say, I don't mean much. I don't have anything to share. I don't have any money. I don't have any talent. I don't have anything. I'm just a little person. What can I do to contribute to the church service or to the witness of Christ in the community? What can I do to be a part of ministry of the church. I'm just a nobody. Listen. That little bit that you have in the hands of God can perform for multitudes of people. Because God can take your little and make it into much. It's not what do we give to him that makes the difference. It's that we give and he will take what and multiply it many times and it'll become a great blessing to many people. Do you have a little voice? Let God have it and you'll preach great sermons in your life. You have a penny only? Jesus said there was a woman who came into the temple and came up to the treasury box and dropped in a penny. And he noticed that she was in the midst of a great number of people who were dropping in lots of money. He said that woman gave more than all the rest of them. Jesus would take our little and multiply it and make something great out of it when we commit to him. So he took an insignificant bowl of water 
had ever been tasted. Now let me say one further thing about the subject, the best to last. The master called the bridegroom, and he said, usually, people serve their best wine first when everybody's had all, basically, all they want, and they'll put out that which isn't so good. He said, you've done the opposite. I want you to consider something. When God formulated his plans for the world, he sent prophets and priests and kings and leaders of every kind and description to try to lead a people who were belligerent and wouldn't be led. They were great men, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph, Daniel, and Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and all the others, but they have never been able to lead the people to a proper relationship with God. They were good, but they weren't the best. And then finally, God said, I'm going to send the best I have, my only son. He'll win. The scripture says in Jesus' words, I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. He was speaking of his cross. <laughs> I know I've told this story, but many of you were not here at the time I told it, probably three years ago or so. But let me, let me repeat it. If you remember, I think it would be worth repeating. It's a true story. Back in the days of the wooden ships, when one of the ships hit a reef, knocked a hole in the wooden side down below the water line, the water was pouring in. The captain and his crew tried desperately with their pumps to overcome the inflow of the water and pump it out, but he saw quickly that he was losing the battle. They searched around the ship for something that they could go down there and seal off that hole, and they couldn't find anything that would do it. As they surveyed the hole, they realized it was about the size of a man's body. And so the captain called his crew together. In the midst of that crew was the captain's own son. And the captain laid out the problem that if they didn't find some way to seal that hole and stop the flow of that water, or at least slow it down, they were going to sink and all on board would be lost. And he said, I have determined the only way we're going to save this ship is if one of you volunteers to go down in the hole, swim through the water, and wedge your body in that hole. He said, I know you're going to give your life, but you'll save the ship and the crew all on board. The son of the captain stepped forth and said, Sir, I will come. And with that statement, he went down into the holding ship and swam through the water and wedged his body in the hole. In order that the people on board could be saved. The captain gave the best that he had to save the people on board. And I think that illustrates what God has done in this whole world. There wasn't a crewman that could do it. 
nor an angel that he could find, nor a great prophet or a priest anywhere. The only thing that was going to save this world from sinking into the depths of hell is if the hole was plugged by the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved the best to last and gave his all. But you and I could live. And this is the last offer that God's going to make. He has no more plan. The best is the last. The scripture says there's none other name given among men whereby you must be saved. If you're on board, and all of us are on board, ship of life, the ship has a hole in it. That was plugged by the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He gives his life I'll give you his best. It's the last offer he's going to make. You're not a Christian. We hope that you will come on this morning. The Lord Jesus will save Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.